You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, we are in the third week and the third chapter of the book of Acts. The end of Acts chapter 2, Luke, this historian, this theologian who writes both the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, he gives us this glimpse of the early church living and worshiping together in Jerusalem. He writes at the end of Acts 2, many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. Chapter 3 and 4 then recount one such sign and the responses to it. Uh, This week in chapter 3, we're going to look at the sign itself and how Peter then uses it as an opportunity to proclaim Jesus. And then next week, we'll see the trouble that this sign incites with the religious leaders, with the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. This is Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, that is three o'clock in the afternoon. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? As though by our own power or piety we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Verse 17, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. 
You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in you, your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would send your spirit among us as we meditate upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Prepare our minds, even in these moments, to receive, to hear your word. Move our hearts to accept what we hear. Purify our will to obey you in joy, to obey you in faith. And all of this we pray through Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, who is our God. Amen. Amen. With our time this morning, uh, we're going to look at three things we learn from the sign and sermon in Acts chapter 3. So lots of threes today. Chapter 3, third week in the book of Acts, three points. Uh, we were with our deacons and elders Monday night at a meeting, and our deacons are on to me. They know I'm a three-point alliteration sermon preacher. That's my, I know who I am. I know what I'm about. That's my game. So got one of those for you today as well. First, miracles restore and reflect. Second, repentance refreshes. And third, Jesus realizes. Jesus fulfills so many scriptures and promises and purposes of God. So miracles restore and reflect. Repentance refreshes. Jesus realizes. First, miracles restore and reflect. Jesus, during his earthly ministry, went about ministering in both word and deed. He came proclaiming with his words the kingdom of God, and in many instances then displayed the power of God's kingdom through miracles. So as the apostles carry on the very same ministry of Jesus, as they do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it's fitting that their ministry also is a ministry of both word and deed. Peter and John here in Acts 3 are on their way to the temple for the hour of prayer. And they meet this man who has never been able to walk in his life. We learn in chapter 4 that this man is more than 40 years old. And he's a recognizable figure at the temple. Every day for many years, his family members or his friends have situated him at the beautiful gate to beg for money. And so people who attended the temple would know who this man is. On this day, though, Peter gives him something infinitely better than money. This great line, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter then takes him by the hand, and immediately, we read, his feet and his ankles become strong, and he walks, and he leaps, and he praises God. Just like Jesus' miracles, this miracle restores. It restores. It is physically restorative. God created, and God cares about our physical bodies. God grieves the decay that results from our rebellion against him our rebellion into sin that began all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And so as a scholar named William Lane once put it, healing, miraculous healing, is a gracious movement of God into the sphere of withering and decay, which are tokens of death at work in a man's life. And he goes on to write, every healing is a driving back of death and an invasion of the province of sin. So miracles, when we see them in Scripture, they're not just these novelties. They're not just these cool demonstrations of power. 
They have deep purpose. Miracles are actually God breaking into and interrupting the status quo. The status quo that, that as we well know, is so corrupted and tainted by sin. The status quo that we've become so resigned to accepting in our lives. Miracles are God breaking into that and and shaking that up. And so this moment in Acts 3 is one more small invasion of the kingdom of God. Pushing back death, pushing back decay. It's one more small glimpse of God's restorative work. Peter's going to go on to proclaim in just a few verses, down in verse 21, Jesus is the one who is restoring all things. What sin steals, Jesus puts back. What's, what's wrong with the world is being made right in Christ. And this is a particularly fitting glimpse of that for a temple full of Jewish men and women. Because centuries earlier, the prophet Isaiah wrote about some of the signs of the Messianic age, some of the signs that the restorative, redeeming reign of God was at hand. And among those signs, Isaiah chapter 35, verses 5 and 6, the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, and the lame man will leap like a deer, just as he is in Acts chapter 3. Peter and John never quite do make it to the hour of prayer that day. But they become instruments of God's restoration. They do that initially in more ordinary, everyday ways, like looking intently at a man that most people just pass by without a glimpse. Things like reaching out and taking him by the hand when few would even dare to go near him. These are things which themselves begin to restore this man's dignity that he has inherently as an image bearer of God. But then Peter and John become instruments of God's miraculous restorative work, his power over the decaying effects of sin to bring this restoration. They also here seize this opportunity to reflect Jesus. Miracles don't only restore, they reflect and in this moment where all the attention is immediately thrust upon them, where all the eyes are directed upon Peter and John, they immediately redirect those eyes to Jesus. And they say, do you honestly think that we in ourselves have the ability to do something like that for this man? Don't stare at us. Why are you looking at us? Look at him. Look at Christ. Now, you and I aren't apostles like Peter and John. Uh, we don't have their same authority. We don't have their same specific calling and commission that Jesus gave to them as they began the church. At the same time, we do damage to Scripture when we put God into a box and we say that he can't still do things like this. When we categorically dismiss miracles. When we leave no room in our understanding for God to use a human instrument to bring healing, to bring this kind of physical restoration. Apart from the fact that we're not apostles like Peter and John, I think there are two reasons that we don't see more of this in us and through us, at least in our culture. One is that we're way too addicted to the attention. We're way too addicted to the attention. We're, we're a narcissistic people as it is. I mean, look what we do with social media, for example. How could we possibly handle the attention that would come if God were to work powerfully through us in some way like this? We're too hungry for our own glory. We want the platform. We want the fame. We want the eyes on us. When Peter's action, when this miracle drew a crowd, 
Notice here, it wasn't two seconds before Peter said, get your eyes off of me, get your eyes onto Jesus. And if we lived our lives like that, not just paying lip service to that, but believe that deep down, if we deep down in us really did not want the attention on ourselves, if we didn't care about getting the credit for things, then I think we would be surprised about the, by the powerful ways that God would not only work in us, but the ways God would work through us. The other reason that I don't think we see this much in our culture, we're not dependent like Peter and John are, like they were in this moment. Not least of which is because, as they said here, they have nothing else to give him. They have no silver or gold. They're relying on God's provision for everything. All they have to give him is Christ. There's an apocryphal story from the Middle Ages about Thomas Aquinas, famous Catholic leader from those days, visiting Pope Innocent II. And the Pope in this story is counting out a large sum of money. And Thomas comes in and the Pope turns to Thomas and he says, You see, Thomas, the church can no longer say, Silver or gold have I none. True, Thomas replied. Neither can she now say, Rise up and walk. And then he dropped the microphone and left. Pope Innocent there. Don't, don't press that story for every theological detail or theological accuracy, but you get the point, yes? You get the point. We're self-reliant people. And so even though we would never say this out loud, most of us at least, deep down, what we think we have to offer other people is ourselves. We think the best we have to offer people is our time, our advice, our counsel, our money, which is both a radical overestimation of ourselves and a radical underestimation of the real thing that we have to offer, which is the restoration of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. What can we do about someone's circumstances? What can we do when someone suffers a debilitating, lifelong physical condition like this man? Maybe you've sat in the same room across the table from dozens of people like I have in situations like this. What can we do? I don't know. I don't know. I certainly reject the tragic and hideous lie that if people just had more faith, they would be healed. That if they just had more faith, they would be rich to boot. I reject the garbage that if you're not healthy, it's because you haven't activated your faith or claimed your blessing or whatever other empty phrase charlatans masquerading as servants of Jesus are using today and have used throughout the history of the church. But even if we can't do a thing about another person's conditions, about their circumstances, the gospel in and of itself is restorative. Ultimately, faith heals because it is faith that brings us into the restoring, redeeming reign of God. It is faith that brings us into relationship, into communion with the one who is making all things new. And I wish, as I sit across the table from people, as I put my hand upon them and pray for them, I wish that in those moments, more often, God would make that new right then and there. But even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, faith heals, offering people Christ and faith in Christ heals because it brings them into and under the restoring reign of the one who makes all things new. So recognize your dependence. Recognize that what you really have to offer, the best you have to offer, is not yourself, but Jesus. We, we sing this song together sometimes. All I have is Christ. Amen to that. God forbid we would ever offer people something other, something less than that.
As Peter then moves here from the sign itself to a sermon. The second thing we learn in Acts chapter 3 is repentance refreshes. Repentance refreshes. There are a lot of sermons in the book of Acts, and in the many sermons recorded here, there are some common essential elements. Last week we looked at four common elements of early, uh, the early preaching of the apostles. Though there are common elements, though, there's not a formula. There's not a formula. At times, the apostles put more emphasis on what we call the indicative, on what is true, on what God has done. And other times, and, and in those times, then maybe they only include a little bit of what we call the imperative, or what to do, the ways to live in response to the truth. There's the indicative, what is true. There's the imperative, what to do. And so sometimes there's a lot of this and a little bit of this. Sometimes it's the other way around. Sometimes there's a little bit of indicative, a little bit of truth, and a lot of how to live in light of it. Last week in Acts chapter 2, there was a lot of truth and a very short appeal. But here in Acts 3, though there's still plenty of truth, Peter fleshes out a lot more about the call to repentance, about what to do, and why to repent, and, and what results from repentance. The why is stated very plainly and directly. As he says, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You denied him before Pilate. In choosing Barabbas, in choosing this murderer over Jesus, you simultaneously condemned the innocent and acquitted the guilty. In summary, you killed the author of life. And what a statement that is. What a statement that is. What a testament to both God's humility and our wickedness as humanity. We killed the one through whom all things have life. The Bible study group I'm part of early Friday mornings was talking about this just a couple days ago. It's striking here how Peter uses the second person instead of the first person. So all of these you statements, instead of saying we, which is the first person, he says you delivered him over to death. You denied him. You killed the author of life. I don't know how that, how that strikes you. I'm a lot more comfortable with we statements where the speaker identifies with the people. And maybe you've even picked up on that in, in my own preaching. It's not accidental. I always want to be clear that I'm not exempt from the things that I'm saying to you, that I don't consider myself to be above or better than anyone else in this call to follow Christ. But when we say we, it can soften the edge, can it? It can soften the edge. When someone says, you did this, it's your fault. It's more sting in that. And it's impossible for us to hide, to, to sneak backward into the anonymous we. It leaves our personal responsibility right out in the open for us to have to, to do something with. Now with this specific crowd, you, saying you, makes complete sense. They're at the temple. They're among faithful, observant Jews. It's been about 53 days and change since Jesus' trial and crucifixion. And so some of the people listening to Peter here are no doubt some of the same people who were in the crowd when Jesus was delivered over and denied before Pilate. In a broader sense, though, the same thing is true of us. We, of course, weren't there in first century Jerusalem, but Jesus went to the cross because of your sin, because of my sin. 
If Peter were standing up in front of us today, he really wouldn't have to modify this sermon that much for it to speak directly to us and our own guilt, our own part in this. The truly striking thing about these words, though, is the one who's saying them. Because who else denied Jesus? Peter did. He's famous for it, right? Peter denied Jesus. If ever there were a moment to say, we, isn't this that moment? Isn't this that moment? Well, yes and no. Certainly, Peter is still a work in progress. He has a lot of growing left to do, and we'll see that play out in the book of Acts. Quick example. Before this sermon is over, he quotes Genesis 12 about Jesus being the offspring of Abraham through whom God is going to bless all the families of the earth. But it is many more chapters, and it is not until after a supernatural corrective vision from Jesus that Peter finally goes, oh, that means Gentile families too. It takes him a while to get there, to get there. So Peter certainly could say we in this moment, but he says you, I think, because having denied Jesus three times, Peter has also repented, and he has experienced the results of that repentance. So look again at verses 19 and 20. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Three results of repentance. Forgiveness, refreshing, and the return of Christ. The third one is in the distant future. Christ will come again, but he will delay his return because he desires that none should perish. He desires that all would hear the gospel and repent and put their faith in him. The other two results of repentance are immediate, though. Repent and be forgiven. As Peter says here, your sins will be blotted out. They will be as if they never existed at all. A scholar named William Barclay described Peter's imagery, his metaphor, this way. He said, ancient writing was upon papyrus, and the ink used had no acid in it. It therefore did not bite into the papyrus as modern ink does. It simply lay upon the top of it. To erase the writing, one might take a wet sponge and simply wipe it away. And that's what God does with our sin. Our denial are killing the author of life. God looks upon Christ and he wipes our slate clean. He casts our sin into the depths of the sea. He removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And Peter is so confident that God has done that for him that he doesn't have to say we here. He doesn't have to use the first person because it's already true of him. See, there are two kinds of people who say you. Those who are arrogant and self-righteous those who kid themselves about the depth of their own depravity, or, or those who are so confident in their new identity, so confident in the power of God to blot out all of their transgressions that they long for you, they long for others to experience the same thing. And that's Peter. That's Peter. We know not only from the story of the rest of his life, but we know that because of the other thing he says right after that. He says that when we repent, times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. Sin and the guilt that it brings is exhausting. It's exhausting. And some of you right now in this moment are living your life against the grain of God's design. And it's made you weary. It's made you weary. 
And it's not COVID that's making you weary. And it's not because it's February in Pennsylvania that's making you weary. It really is because the sin in your life and the guilt it brings and the shame it brings and the condemnation it brings is exhausting. Think of Peter himself and imagine the condemnation that he carried around after he denied Jesus three times. And then Jesus goes to the cross and Peter thinks that's the end of the story. If it was, the shame and the condemnation of that would have destroyed him. And rather being the rock upon which Jesus built his church, Peter would have much more likely followed Judas's lead. And in the shame and in the guilt and the weight of the condemnation on his shoulders would have taken his own life, not being able to handle that the rest of his days. But repenting of his sin and being restored by Jesus on that beach one morning, Peter drank deeply of God's forgiveness. And it refreshed him. And the weight of that shame and the weight of that condemnation came off of him. So can yours. So can yours. That's what Peter is saying to the people in this crowd. And that's what I am saying in the name of the same Jesus to you. From your sin, from your denial, from your rebellion, repent, turn back, and dare to imagine the day where you are so refreshed in the forgiveness and grace of God, where you are so confident in the new identity that you have and God's power to wipe your slate clean, that you, like Peter, can use second-person language to invite other people to experience the same. So miracles restore and reflect. Repentance refreshes. Third and finally, Jesus realizes. Jesus fulfills all of these different scriptures and promises and purposes of God. And even though Peter spends a lot of time here in Acts 3 fleshing out the call to repentance, he still includes a lot of that indicative of the truth about Jesus. And in fact, just from these first two sermons in the book of Acts, we get an incredibly fleshed out, an incredibly robust picture of who Jesus is. All of these facets of the diamond, all of these fulfillments that Jesus accomplishes that help us see him truly for who he is. We'll run through them just really quickly. First, Jesus is the son of David. That's really Peter's emphasis in all of Acts chapter 2. He quotes two psalms and alludes to a third, all of which say Jesus is the one who will forever sit on David's throne. He is great David's greater son. He's the king of kings. Then here in Acts 3, we see many more facets. Verse 13 Jesus has been sent from the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. It's not a different God. It's not a different mission. Jesus is a continuation of all that God has been doing throughout the Old Testament. Also, verse 13, Jesus is God's servant. And if we look down a few more verses to verse 18, a servant who would suffer. The early church immediately understood Jesus as the fulfillment of, of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53 about a suffering servant, the one who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows, the one who was stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, and the one by whose wounds we are healed. Then in verse 14, Jesus is the holy and righteous one. So back up in verse 6, Peter refers to Jesus as Jesus of Nazareth, which emphasizes his humanity. He was a real flesh and blood man with a hometown, with a family, like each of us has. 
Calling him here, though, the holy and righteous one emphasizes his divinity, his identity as God, which, of course, is what the Jews recognized in his claims about himself and charged him with blasphemy for. Then verse 15, Jesus is the author of life. We've already looked at that. The one from whom and to whom and through whom are all things. Verse 22, Jesus is the prophet. Centuries earlier, Moses prophesied that God would raise up from among the people a prophet like him, prophet like Moses. Jesus is that prophet. But, verse 24, it's not only Moses, it's all of the prophets who proclaimed the fulfillment of God's promises in Jesus. And Peter here mentions specifically Samuel by name because he was the next official prophet after Moses. And Samuel was also the one who anointed King David. So we see if you were with us during our Advent season this past year, we looked at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king. We see even a glimpse of that here in Acts chapter 3. Jesus is the prophet like Moses, and he's the king like David. We get more of the priest fulfillments in other parts of Scripture. And then lastly, verses 25 and 26, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of this covenant that God made to bless all of the families of the earth through Abraham's line. And incredibly, Peter says here, though you, Jewish men and women hearing this sermon in Peter's day, though you have been ignorant of it, though Jesus' blood is on your hands, God is so committed to that covenant he made with Abraham that the first offer of this blessing, the first offer of this salvation in Jesus' name is going to come to the very ones who called for Jesus' death. Why? Because when we are faithless, he is faithful. He cannot disown himself. He is that committed to carrying through his plan and his purposes and his promise. All of that to say, Consider these beautiful threads which weave together into the perfect tapestry that is Jesus Christ. He is all of these things and more. And that means that in any moment, any given moment of our lives, he can meet us right where we are. The more we plumb the depths of who Jesus is, the more there is for us to cling to in any and every moment of our lives. The more living water there is for us to drink deeply of and be refreshed by. So in this short sermon in Acts 3, Peter gets as much of that summary out there as quickly as he can. He's got this key moment with an amazed, attentive crowd gathered around him. He wants to set before their eyes as many of the facets of who Jesus is as he can. He wants to whet their appetite. This morning, let it whet yours as well. This Lent, as we prepare for Good Friday and Easter, explore more of the fullness of Jesus all that he is, all that he has fulfilled and accomplished. Let us never tire of seeing more of the beauty, more of the facets of who Jesus is. Let it lead you to gratitude. Let it lead you to repentance and faith. And until the day when Jesus restores all things, may you be refreshed by his presence among us. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. We praise you, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask that our response, that seeing your restorative work, longing for more of it, 
that seeing you get the credit and the glory for all the power, the powerful works that you have done and will do, the being refreshed by our repentance, all of these things, Father, we pray that our response to you, the way that we live and all of the things we do and the way we seek to love other people would be increasingly a worthy response. We pray that now as we prepare to come to your table, we would be refreshed by your presence. That this precious day, this precious moment, this time together would be a time of refreshing from your presence. We confess our own weariness, our own proclivity to run back into the sin that you have freed us from. We need your grace. We need your renewal. We need your refreshing in this moment and in every moment of our lives. So we're grateful, Jesus, that you hold it out to us. As you held it out to Peter, as Peter, as you used Peter to hold it out to this crowd, you now hold it out to us. Let us be those who see your beauty and worth, who repent and believe the gospel, and who are refreshed in you. We pray that in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.